Welcome to episode 22 of my podcast. As you may know, I'm working on a master's thesis on new philosophical arguments for God, developed within recent natural theology and analytic philosophy of religion. In the last episode, I discussed natural theology, and in this episode, I will say a few things about analytic philosophy, of which analytic philosophy of religion is of course part. In the next episode, I will zoom in on analytic philosophy of religion. When it comes to contemporary philosophy, it is common to distinguish analytic and continental philosophy. The distinction seems to have been introduced after the Second World War among professional philosophers in England. The term continental philosophy was used to refer to philosophies, philosophers, and philosophical movements then found in continental Europe, while the term analytic philosophy was used to refer to certain philosophical approaches found in England and later also in the wider English-speaking world. The boundaries between analytic and continental philosophy are, in actuality, somewhat vague, but the terms and distinction remain useful. Continental philosophy is strongly, but not exclusively, associated with certain German and French philosophers and thinkers influenced by them. Some of the people referred to in this context are Immanuel Kant, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, Søren Kierkegaard, Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, Edmund Husserl, Martin Heidegger, Jean-Paul Sartre, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, and Emmanuel Levinas. When it comes to continental philosophy of religion, in addition to Derrida and Levinas, Paul Ricoeur and Jean-Luc Marion seem to be key figures. Analytic philosophy is, on the other hand, strongly associated with Anglophone philosophers. According to Avram Stroll, it is a set of loosely related approaches to philosophical problems and has been dominant in Anglo-American philosophy from the early 20th century, with most work in analytic philosophy having been done in Great Britain and the USA, although it is also found elsewhere, for instance, in Latin America. Straw indicates further that the start of modern analytic philosophy is usually dated to the time when the English philosophers Bertrand Russell and G.E. Moore rebelled against absolute idealism, then dominant in English philosophy. Russell himself seems to have dated this event to the end of 1898. Aaron Preston also traces the origins of analytic philosophy back to Moore and Russell, but also indicates that the German philosopher Gottlob Frege is also included by many as a founder of analytic philosophy. Frege was an older contemporary of Moore and Russell, and is considered to have played a crucial role in the emergence of modern logic. Frege also had an influence on Russell and Ludwig Wittgenstein, another key figure of analytic philosophy. Russell and Moore have been linked to two traditions within analytic philosophy, formalism and informalism, respectively. Both traditions seem to be concerned with clarification and linguistic analysis. Formalism is characterized by the use of symbolic logic. This is difficult to explain briefly, but various signs and symbols can be used to represent things said in ordinary human languages. For example, the sentence, if Bob is at work now, then he is not at home, can be symbolized as P, arrow, Q. Here P refers to the meaning of Bob is at work now, and Q to that of he is not at home, and the if-then part of the sentence is symbolized with the arrow symbol. As we can see, such symbols allow one to say things without using a lot of words or characters, but such symbols 
are also used to clarify claims or statements and to state things in a way that is precise and clear. The heavy use of symbolic logic is, on a side note, perhaps one of the clearest indications that one is dealing with a philosopher belonging to or influenced by analytic philosophy. That being said, informalism, associated with more, is not characterized by heavy use of symbolic logic, but looks more to everyday usage of terms and concepts to clarify things. The history of analytic philosophy is divided by Aaron Preston into five phases. The first phase, from around the start of the 20th century to 1910, is a phase in which Moore and Russell held forms of propositional realism. By 1910, however, Moore had adopted a common-sense philosophy, and Russell had come to hold a form of logical atomism, which he had developed with Ludwig Wittgenstein, who had come to study with him, apparently at the suggestion of Gottlob Frege. Logical atomism is very roughly the view that with analysis, the logical structure of language can be revealed, with atomic propositions forming the most basic level. The second phase lasted to around 1930, when a new phase in analytic philosophy started with the rise of logical positivism, developed by the so-called Vienna Circle and popularized by the English philosopher A.G. Ayer. Logical positivism is of particular interest to me because its collapse has been associated with the flourishing of contemporary natural theology. According to Stroll, logical positivism was, above all else, anti-metaphysical, and he explains that for logical positivism, something can only be learned about the world through empirical science. One of the core tenets of logical positivism was a principle or family of principles known as the verification principle on which, roughly, a statement is only meaningful if it is empirically verifiable or tautological. Statements like, God exists, are thought to be neither, and thus to be, in a sense, meaningless. It's not hard to see that such convictions do not sit well with natural theology and much of contemporary philosophy of religion. Preston's fourth phase is from about 1945 until 1965, and is characterized by the ordinary language analysis of Wittgenstein and others. The fifth phase, from about 1965 until now, is characterized in terms of pluralism and eclecticism. According to Preston, analytic philosophy in this phase can be loosely characterized in terms of its style, which tends to emphasize precision and thoroughness about a narrow topic and to de-emphasize the imprecise or cavalier discussion of broad topics. Importantly, during these phases, possible world semantics was developed by David Lewis, Saul Kripke, and others, which is used by many analytic philosophers today to clarify claims about the possibility, impossibility, or necessity of things, also known as modal claims. There are different views on possible worlds among philosophers using such semantics, but they generally agree, for example, that for something to be possibly true, it has to be true in at least one possible world. We can get some grasp what is being talked about if we think of ourselves as inhabiting a possible world, W1. In our possible world, certain things are the case. For instance, in our possible world, the United Kingdom has left the European Union. But if that were not the case, and all else were the same, then we would be living in a different possible world, W2. Now, if there is such a non-actual possible world, then it arguably follows that the claim the UK has not left the EU, although actually false, is possibly true because it is true in at least one possible world. All this may seem rather abstract and irrelevant for us, but philosophers of religion have, for instance, drawn on possible world semantics in developing arguments for God's existence. 
Much more could be said about analytic philosophy, but we will leave it with this brief discussion. In the next episode, I will zoom in on analytic philosophy of religion. I hope you found this brief episode interesting, and thank you for listening, and hopefully until next time.